There you go. We are now in what can only be described as the home stretch. After two years in the book of Romans, today we begin chapter 16, which is the final chapter of the book of Romans. Uh, we're doing most of it this week. Uh, we've, we've saved the doxology at the end for Mike's sermon next week. Um, and that will bring us to the end of the book. By the time we get to our combined service in two weeks' time, our celebration, uh, we will be recapping ground covered thus far during the series. So we've made it. We've, uh, we've, we've gone from the base camp to the summit and back down the other side again. Uh, and now the, the Sherpas are on the home stretch and we are breathing easy because there's oxygen again. Now, um, much like last week when, when Mike was, was preaching for us, our passage today is, is on the long side, uh, and the way that Mike got around that in his sermon was to get someone to do the Bible reading for him before, before the sermon so that he could focus in on the bits that he was going to be preaching on. Um, however, today's sermon is mostly a really long list of ancient names, and I thought that that would be unkind to put on someone else, so I'm going to give it a crack. Uh, but as we read it... Um, which is probably worth mentioning, we're in a bit of a baby boom right now as a church, so if, if like us, you've been struggling to think of names, um, here are some options for you. I think we're currently leaning towards Aristobulus. <laughs> Let's go from verse 1. You're a wizard, Ari, we could say, and it would still work. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia and perhaps the inventor of Epinatus, we'll never know. <laughs> Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophana and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, who uh, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. 
The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipeta, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. So as you can see, most of what has just taken up our attention is an extended set of personal remarks. Um, the, the themes of the book of Romans have, have shifted across the course of our time in it, and we really are at the point now where we are wrapping things up. Sandwiched in amongst all of these personal greetings is a bit of a teaching moment, really the kind of the last main teaching moment of the book of Romans, and so we are going to focus our time there. Um, but before we get there, there are some things in the personal comments that are worth pulling out. All of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful, we have been told, and we believe here in this church. Um, and so even in a list of greetings like that, we do find food for our souls. There's some, some wisdom buried in here for us. Let me pull, pull out four things really quickly. Um, firstly, we read here about a, a sister named Priscilla, and she's important because in this passage she is called a deacon. Now, it is, it is possible that the word here translated deacon, um, is it translated servant or deacon? I can't remember off the top of my head. She um, is a servant of the church, according to the, to the ESV. But it is, it's the same word that gets translated deacon in other places. And so there is a decision to be made about whether Phoebe was someone who served the church, quite literally, or whether, deacon, uh, whether Phoebe held the office of deacon. And like many others, we have concluded that she is, in fact, a deacon in the early church, and is, her, her life is part of the reason why we here at Inogra interpret the Bible as teaching us that we should also have women in our diaconate. She's an important lady. She's a significant lady. She is an influential lady, um, and she is a benefactor. She's so possibly wealthy, but she's using her wealth to serve Jesus, and I look forward to meeting Priscilla. We know nothing else about her other than this passage, unfortunately. It's one of those small insights into somebody's life that's just enough to get your appetite wet and then, and then not to give you anything more. Phoebe, I swapped names halfway through. It's Phoebe, yeah. Phoebe in verse 1. Great. On my slide, it says Priscilla. I made that slide during the prayer meeting this morning. That's how that went wrong. <laughs> Two. Um, much like how you just got an insight into how sermons are written, there is a cheeky insight into how the Bible was written, found in here. Uh, right near, uh, towards the end of our passage, we read a man named Tertius introduces himself. Um, Tertius is what is known as an amanuensis, meaning that the way in which the letter to the Romans was written was not that Paul, you know, unrolled a giant scroll long enough to write the whole of Romans on over his table and then got his pen out and wrote it himself, Rather, he was dictating whilst somebody else, who's also a Christian brother, was writing down the words that Paul was saying. And so that just gives us a, a little bit of a, an insight into how the, um, how the Bible was written, and also gives us something of an imperfect illustration as to how God inspired the Bible through human authors, much like how Paul's words were being written by Tertius, and though, even though these words were written by Tertius' hands, they were Paul's words um, God, by His Holy Spirit, has inspired human authors to write His words by their own hands. It's not a perfect illustration, but it is helpful. Once again, just like with Phoebe, we know very little about Tertius, other than the fact that his name means 
number three, and that's cool. I wonder who Primus and Secondus were. Third, what we see in this entire passage is an extended and strong reminder that the Apostle Paul never traveled alone where he could help it. There were some occasions where he was arrested and taken, bound in chains, led away from his ministry team, but the overwhelming majority of his ministry, even the Apostle Paul believed that he needed the fellowship of the church, and he traveled with brothers and sisters who were precious not only to his ministry, but to him personally. Even the apostles needed other Christians, and of course, so did we. So should we. Um, and so we as Christians should plan to serve God, not just alone, but together. Why would we not make use of the strength that the church provides for us in our lives of service? And last but not least, I wanted to mention the fact that it says that we are supposed to greet each other with a holy kiss. And I think that sounds unpleasant. And if you try to do that to me, I will probably accidentally throw hands. <laughs> so, Okay, those things aside... Uh, let's now focus our attention on verses 7 to 20, this, this teaching moment, which is something of a warning. We'll read it again because we made our way through so much distance so far. Let's, let's get it fresh in our minds. Romans 16, verses 17 to 20. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So what is it that we're reading about here? This is a fitting conclusion to the teaching content of the book of Romans. Think about what we have heard thus far in the letter. Romans has been a deep dive into the fundamentals of the Christian faith, starting with the content of our belief, with a special focus on the question, how can I be saved? What is it that reconciles us to God? And the answer has been clear. Salvation is by grace and through faith. That's where we began. That has been unpacked at depth, chapter after chapter. Having heard the content of the good news, what it is that we are to believe, Paul has then turned our attention to application. If salvation is based in grace, how is it that we as Christians are to live as living sacrifices? And now, having unpacked that for us over a number of chapters, Paul gives us this earnest encouragement to make sure that we persevere to the end without wavering from those fundamentals that we have heard thus far. Christian, your goal in this life is this. Having begun by faith in Jesus, make it all the way to the end without wavering. Do not get distracted. Do not get misled. Do not get taken off the road that leads to salvation. These encouragements 
matter. Paul has, if you think about it, at this point in his ministry, at the point where the letter to the Romans is being written, he has already observed a pattern that is playing out again and again and again in the various churches of which he has previously been a minister. And the pattern goes like this. As the apostle to the Gentiles, he would arrive in a new town, and through the preaching of the gospel, a new church would come into existence, a church which exists on the basis basis of the salvation message that Paul has been explaining to us here in Romans. That is the thing that has created the church. God has used the gospel to produce faith in individuals, to reconcile with them, and then to bind them together with one another into a new congregation. That's step one in the life of the churches. Step two, false teachers of some kind or another would descend on these new churches, usually immediately after Paul left, but sometimes whilst he was still there, and they would begin to change or challenge the gospel, the message which had created the church. As a result of this, some were led away from their original faith into some kind of disastrous distortion. Paul has seen this played out enough times that he's contacting the church in Rome, not a church which he himself planted, but is planning to visit soon, and warning them of a danger that he has seen is facing not just one or two churches, but all of them. And his warning is not an emotionally neutral one. This is not just a, a, by the way, this is a thing you might want to be aware of. You can hear the heartache that this causes him, and you can see the kind of anger that Paul reserved for false teachers, for example, in his letter to the church in Galatia, written before the book of Romans, where this same pattern was playing out. He says in Galatians chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. That word translated here, accursed, is the word anathema. We still use it sometimes. Anathema is a strong word. In the various English translations of the Bibles, it gets rendered all sorts of different ways to try and capture the forcefulness of what Paul is saying here. Some Bible translations say, may they be eternally condemned. May they be punished by God, or even, 
in the Good News Bible of all places, quite a friendly translation, may they be condemned to hell. It's strong language. Paul is quite literally praying for judgment on the people who would distort the gospel of Christ within the church. Later in the letter to the Galatians, he encourages such people to castrate themselves because the issue that they were using to distort the gospel was circumcision. That is as harsh as we ever see the Apostle Paul get in the Scriptures. Why? What is it that has this godly man worked up to that kind of get-yourself-banned-from-Twitter level of communication? Simply put, because of the size of what is at stake in this disaster. Because of the size of what is at stake in this disaster. We are talking about an issue of heaven and hell significance for the people involved. This is a salvation issue. Brothers and sisters, what we have been hearing here in the book of Romans is Paul's gospel, the gospel, God's message of how we can be saved. And we have learned that there is only one way by which we can be saved. It is by faith in Jesus alone. There is no substitute. There is no alternative. Jesus is the only way to God. The gospel really is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so somebody coming into a church and beginning to actively undermine that essential message in any way is playing games with other people's souls. This is not an academic debate. False teachers put people in eternal danger and every single soul in the church is precious. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive, Paul tells us. And he's seen it happen time and again. It's a life or death problem. Those who follow such a false teacher are being led away from Jesus. That is worse than if these people had walked into a church, pulled out a gun, and shot someone. Sounds strong, doesn't it? But if you shoot me right now, you are sending me to heaven for eternity. Thank you very much for the service rendered. If you lead me away from Jesus, were such a thing possible? When there is no other way to be saved, then you are condemning me to hell for eternity. Jesus warned us of this same danger during his earthly ministry, and he told us that this problem would escalate as we head into the last times. In Matthew chapter 13, Verse 21 and onwards we read. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise 
and they'll perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. There's a beautiful balance to what Jesus says here. What he is saying is that it is not possible to lead astray the elect. That's not how that works. However, that assuring promise is not grounds for complacence in the face of false teachers and false prophets. They will gain a significant following, and that will be a tragedy. They are a real danger, and we must be warned and on our guard against them. Churches, I hope, everywhere, are very gracious places. We believe in grace. We believe in treating people better than they deserve. We believe in and practice reconciliation and forgiveness when others are wrong. In order to become unwelcome in that kind of community, you've got to be really trying. This is the sort of stuff that rises to that level. This is how you do it. You undermine the gospel in the lives of others. That should not be tolerated within a church. And so right here at the end of Romans, Paul takes a quick opportunity to warn the church in Rome of this danger which he has seen play out so many times before. He's warning them so that they can avoid the harm which has taken others unawares in their naivety. He says to them, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Having begun well, he wants to make sure that they persevere in faith all the way up to the finish line so that they can get the promised reward. And what is true for them is also true for us. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And so let's do a thing. Let's spend a period of our time this morning considering what is and what isn't the kind of problem that we are being warned of here. What things do you need to be doing in order to rise to the level of being a false teacher whom the church should avoid? Here's some categories for your consideration. It's not a complete list. If you think of something that I've missed, please come and share it with me. I'd find that really helpful. Category one, Mike. <laughs> Category two. Here's a category of problem, messing with the gospel, changing the gospel. These are the teachings that say things like, salvation isn't necessary. Everyone's going to heaven. It's a false gospel. Any teaching that says salvation is by works, or that salvation is by a mingling of grace and works. That was the Galatian heresy. Anyone who says that salvation is by another name, there's somebody other than Jesus who can reconcile you to God. All of these are false teachers and false teachings, and we must reject and oppose them. The next category, redefining sin. 
redefining sin. This is someone who says, as a Christian, God approves of my sin. We we think of the example in the Corinthian church that we were warned against where uh, it says that a man has his father's wife and we find ourselves really hoping that means stepmom. And they're proud of their tolerance for putting up with such a thing. Apparently, the book of Corinthians was written in the year of our Lord, 2023. This is a false teaching. It undermines the gospel. Claiming that I am sinless. This one's gaining a rising popularity. That because I am Christian, I am without sin. What a perilous teaching that will rob people of the possibility of a life of ongoing repentance. It must be avoided. Or using God as a tool for my selfish ambition or the love of money, as we see in the prosperity gospel. These are false teachings, and we must oppose them. We must not tolerate them, or they will deceive the naive. The next category of, let's call it heresy, it's the right word. Denying who God is. Denying who God is. Any teaching which denies that Jesus is eternal God and not a mere man any teaching which undermines the essential truth of our God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or any teaching which rejects the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, which Jesus called, in my opinion, the unforgivable sin. The next category. Any teaching which denies God's word. This has a few forms. But there are those who reject parts of the Bible in order to suit their preference. There's famous examples from all throughout history. Some people choose to believe that maybe the Gospel of Mark and maybe two books from the New Testament are the only parts of the Bible that are real, and we can reject the rest and just focus on what we like. And invariably, invariably it's done because these people have no interest in the Lordship of Christ in their lives, and they're looking for the parts that just affirm what they already expected to hear. Likewise, any view which takes the biblical authors and plays them against each other as if they're teaching different gospels. You may believe the gospel of Paul in this church, says one false teacher, but I believe the gospel of Jesus. And so I have a higher gospel. That's still around today. These sorts of things, do you understand, all have the same effect. They muddy, cloud, deny make a ruin of the gospel of grace that salvation is in Jesus alone, that there is no one else, but that he can reconcile us to God and that we need him and receive him by grace and through faith alone. Now, here's some things that aren't false teaching, lest we make that mistake. Firstly, people who are not Christians, who are coming to church to learn in order to make an informed decision about what they believe about the world, that is not the false teachers whom we are called to oppose. People, Christians, who are wrestling with doubt or grief, that's not false teaching. You don't get removed. In a church, you should get compassion. How about new Christians who are still learning, who when we look at the details of their lives, they're a complete mess. (laughs) Because of course they are. No, if that's you, you don't get judgment. You get patience. What about mature Christians who are found to be in sin but are repentant? 
Neither do you get judgment, but rather you get restoration in a biblical church. Nevertheless, the warning exists that the people who promote these harmful other ideas are false teachers and are not to be tolerated within a church. In the name of grace, we don't put up with them. We remove them. We have nothing to do with them. They are a poison which afflicts the weak, and it is not kind to let them hang around and ply their trade. Churches ignore this warning at their peril. But that's not where our passage finishes today. After the warning comes a glorious promise in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. (laughs) Much like how Jesus to us described both the, the danger and the limits of the danger in his teaching from Matthew, this warning from Paul takes the same shape. The danger is real. We need to know that. But we also need to know that those of us who trust in the name of Jesus are on the winning side and that the schemes of the devil will one day be thwarted. There is a day coming when God will crush Satan under our feet. Actually, this calls to mind the reason why the problem of false teachers plagues the church so consistently, does it not? It is not an accident of random chance that every time a new Christian church comes into existence, some false teacher just happens to spring up in an attempt to derail their faith. It's not an accident. We have an enemy. We are being opposed. The Bible identifies him very clearly. It names him Satan. Jesus teaches us about his nature. He is a deceiver, a liar. He is himself a false teacher. When he lies, Jesus says, he is acting out of his nature. Satan has, since time immemorial, twisted God's word into perversions of reality. Just enough truth to be believable. Just enough truth to be deceptive, but different enough to be a whole lie. Did God really say... Satan asks Eve, who knows full well what God said. And once she begins to take the bait, the lie grows. No, you won't die. He just just doesn't want you to be like him. God is holding out on you. These false teachers who appear consistently in the church are like hostile spies working for the other team, sent to disrupt and to demoralize to cause the wrong kinds of division and to bring about disgrace. False teachers are working for him. That's why they appear. (laughs) Do you remember poor Peter getting the hardest rebuke ever from Jesus and then having to put up with the fact that they wrote it in the Bible and so everyone forever will remember it? 
Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I will be crucified. Peter, for obvious reasons, doesn't like that idea and so has the grand idea to pull Jesus aside and explain to him why Jesus is wrong. Thought he was doing something kind. No, Jesus, says Peter, I won't let that happen. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, which I love to say to my children as frequently as I can. It's not true. I don't do it. I don't do it. Can you imagine being on the receiving end of that one? Brutal. Here's what Jesus was not saying. He was not saying that our enemy Satan has another name, and that name is Peter, son of, son of whoever it is, Cephas? No. Anyone got it? Jonah, thank you. It is Jonah. No, what he was saying was that the words coming out of Peter's mouth were Satan's words. Jesus knew, do you understand, that he came into this world to defeat Satan, to win the spiritual war against him fully and finally. And throughout the whole earthly ministry of Christ, Satan was working to dissuade Jesus from going through with the plan and to tempt him to get off mission. We see it very clearly in the wilderness when Jesus is tempted. During this period of time, Satan plays dirty. So in order to tempt Christ, Satan had been lying to Peter. Isn't that a dirty trick? (laughs) If like in the wilderness, Satan had appeared before Christ and said, don't go to the cross, let me give you a better option, that would have been less tempting, I have no doubt, than to hear those words come from Peter's mouth. And so he had been working on Peter to get that moment to take place. And when that foolishness comes out of faithful Peter's mouth, Jesus sees it for what it is and rebukes the liar who had been deceiving Peter. Get behind me, Satan. The war in which we are involved is as much as anything else an information war. To see God accurately, to hear his words and to follow his invitation is where faith comes from. God is more lovely and God is more satisfying than sin. And when we see him, we know that. And Satan knows that if we can see Jesus, all is lost for him. And so he is at work trying to prevent that from happening. He lies. He obscures. He twists. He distorts. He entices. And then when all of that is successful, he threatens and intimidates like mafia blackmail. If they find out what you did after listening to me, you'll never be able to show your face there again. So don't believe him. So don't believe him. Be wise. Don't be naive. Believe Jesus and not the distortion. And then comes the promise. God will soon crush him. And praise be to God. The first time we ever hear that promise in the Bible 
is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right at the beginning. Just after Satan had successfully deceived Adam and Eve, God curses him and promises that one day a descendant of Eve, who we know as Jesus, would crush his head like somebody stepping on a snake, though the victory would be costly. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. The war is won. The outcome is assured. And yet, just like in so many real-life wars after the declaration of peace, there are some battles left to fight before the end, at the end of which Satan will be fully and utterly destroyed. You know, when I was a new Christian and I heard that, I used to feel sorry for him. It made me sad. And the reasoning went like this. Well, I've just received a grace that I don't deserve. Why doesn't he get some? And here we are half a, half a lifetime later, after watching him intentionally deceive and destroy people and their souls, realizing that he is the master puppeteer behind all the suffering of sin in this world, watching as he leads the naive astray and ruins them, and I find myself unable but to agree with God's judgment. The crushing of Satan cannot come soon enough. And brothers and sisters, we are now closer to that day than anyone who has ever lived before us. It is coming. When? Thursday of next week. <laughs> no. Soon. Soon. When is soon going to be here? We don't know. We are the kids in the back of the car that God is driving. Are we there yet? Soon. It is soon by God's measure, which means <laughs> we have no idea when that day is coming. But we do know it's coming. And we have been told beforehand so that we should remain at the ready until it arrives. And so how do we be ready to bring us to a conclusion today? The grace of God is with us, says Paul. The grace of God is with us. And so perhaps as we have been discussing these spiritual pitfalls today, you have been having the uncomfortable realization that you in your life and in your faith have been taking Satan's bait in some way. You have realized that in some part of your life, the spiritual disinformation campaign about who our God is and how we are to be saved and what it means to serve him in your life has been successful. Perhaps you have realized that you have been enticed into shameful sin and there you are being held prisoner. Perhaps you have believed the lie that there is no grace for you not after what you've done. Perhaps you have believed the lies told to you about God's nature. And as a result, you have become wary of Jesus and are keeping your distance from him, questioning whether or not he is holding out on you because he is not good. 
perhaps Satan has handed you some idol and you have been believing his lies that life cannot be good without this thing and that if God were to take it from you, well, I'd be better off losing God. Just like poor Peter, your, your heart, your doubts have been hijacked in some way and now that he's got you, he continues to lie and says, there's no way out. Mine. Trapped forever. But in reality, the grace of God is with us and the blood of Jesus is for you. The best cure for these problems is the disinfecting power of sunlight. A lie brought into the public and exposed loses its power. Today is a good day to bring our doubts and our shame into the light and to confront them with the Word of God in the presence of God. Today is a good day to take your sin to Jesus and to hear his voice as he corrects the lies that you have been told about him. Or even to bring, to bring those things to a brother or sister whom you trust, to confess out loud and have them remind you of the truths of Christ. Because in doing so, we will find grace. We will find kindness from our God whom contrary to the lie has compassion on us in our weakness. Today is a good day to know the gospel as the power of God for the salvation of all who believe and in the name of Jesus, you and everyone else is welcome. Let's pray. As a church, it is our joy to confess that there is no other name given by which all men must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And we need no other name. He is sufficient. Your grace is enough. Your power is made perfect in our weakness. Who could possibly snatch us from your hand? And yet we hear your warning given to us in love. That there are falsehoods intentionally designed to deceive us away from our hope. Thank you for telling us and not leaving us unwarned, our Father, that our faith will be opposed in this world. Thank you for warning us that though we wouldn't want to give him any more airtime than necessary, that we do in fact have an enemy who is wily. Thank you for warning me, my Father, to take care of my heart and my soul.
lest I be deceived. Father, we confess our sin. (laughs) That though we should, in reality, have a perfect trust in you. Because, (laughs) Because we are fallen, we don't. We have little faith. We have broken faith. We have imperfect faith. Jesus, thank you that while imperfect faith is enough, (laughs) yet we pray you would preserve us through the trial. Would you reveal to me, our God, and to us, any wayward belief that has taken root in our hearts about who you are and what you have done and how we can know you and how we can live for you? Correct in me any belief which would undermine the grace of Jesus in my life. Help me to believe (laughs) that you really are good and that you do good and that you would never deceive us. (laughs) In that moment of temptation, my Father, when I am pulled to believe the easy lie which offers short-term comfort. To take the fleeting pleasures of sin. (laughs) To to eat at the table, the poisonous table of self-sufficiency. Oh, Father, may it never be. Would I see Jesus clearly by your grace? Would you reveal yourself to us? In your word and by your spirit, we pray, show yourself to us. Help us to see you as you are, high and lifted up above the heavens, perfect in holiness and abounding in covenant faithfulness. Father, you have never lied to us once, which means that you are different to everyone else on the planet. Teach us to trust you as you deserve. Get behind us, Satan, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.